And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So if you're watching this on YouTube, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn, you'll see I'm wearing a black shirt, and that can only mean it's time for our holiday season. The Black Shirt Chronicles, I like to call them. Uh, well, this is part two of our, who knows, I think it's a four-part series, could be could extend it into six, Halloween episode series. And today, we are going to talk about poisons. Now, uh, longtime listeners of the show will know that I've had several episodes about poisons, which I'll reference in this episode. But this one is with Dr. Neil Bradbury, who wrote a great book called A Taste for Poison. And we're going to walk through the poisons and how they mechanically affect people, which is pretty interesting stuff. And we're going to profile some of the people who used these poisons for their own nefarious means throughout history. So let's get right into this. Dr. Neil Bradbury, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, I'm going to I'm going to verify. Let me verify some information with you. So, So you're UK trained. That's correct. From what I understand, you have degrees in biochemistry and medical biochemistry. Now, that is there a difference? As, they, how much biochem's out there is what I'm trying to say. Um, there's a lot. Part of my uh, undergraduate degree included a lot of uh, plant biochemistry. Oh, which is very so, apropos for your book. That makes right, that a makes lot of that. So uh, when I did my secondary, it was more focused on uh, human biochemistry and pathological biochemistry. Got it. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because this book, uh, A Taste for Poison, which is out now uh, for right for fresh for Halloween, you kind of take both of those into consideration. We're going to talk a lot about plant bio, plant biochemistry, and its effects on human biochemistry. Uh, but I imagine one thing that's had an effect on your biochemistry is moving from the UK to the States. Uh, you're in Illinois now. And that's where I was, you know, that's the, the land of my birth. Uh, I am a Chicago native. Okay. So you're at Rosalind Franklin University, the School of Medicine and Science, correct? That is correct. Now, uh, if my research serves, that is 3333 Green Bay Road. That is correct. Are you sure that's in Chicago? Technically, it's North Chicago. Well, I guess my question is more, is North Chicago in Wisconsin? Because no self-respecting Chicagoan would be living on a street called Green Bay Road. So, well, you get a pass, but I imagine you have a lot of other natives who live on that same road. It is within Illinois. It's about, health, about 17 miles further north to get to the Wisconsin line. Okay, the great uh, the great cheddar curtain, as they call it. Uh, well, that's all right. Indeed. Well, I mean, you, you may not know. I'm sure you're a uh, soccer, aka football fan, and not an American football fan. But um, you know, you can get kicked out of the state for for living on a road like that if you're not too careful. So just you know, watch your step up there. Be careful who you root for. It's the Bears, not the Packers. I uh, just want it's football season. So want to well, keep you. Well, I yeah, I, I avoid that by being an Alabama fan. Because I moved to Alabama first. <laughs> oh my! Okay. Well, uh, I don't want to get sidetracked on a whole football tangent because you're you're pulling me that way. Um, but I'll, I'll forgive you. You seem like a nice guy. You can't help it. Yeah. You, you know. You don't know what you're stepping into. Just like I wouldn't know what I was stepping into if I was rooting for Manchester United. Uh, but so, which you definitely shouldn't. <laughs> well, you're exactly right. See, I know the faux pas. I know the faux pas, Neil. Uh, I know what I'm. I know what I'm. I make sure I check the ground for landmines before before I walk forward. Uh, but you know, but the UK has got some you know beautiful sites. Uh, one, this was something really interesting that you know while I was doing a little bit of research, I found uh, on on your website you you uh, talk about Alnwick Castle. Yes, two cool things: the Poison Garden, which. I want to hear about, but also that this was the exterior for Hogwarts. 
big Harry Potter fan, I mean, that must have been really cool to visit there. It was. It was uh, really a lot of fun uh, to visit both the castle, mm-hmm. um, which is pronounced Anik, by the Anik. way. Anik. Oh, pardon me. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> Anik. Yes. Thank you very Anik much for that. Castle. Yes. So the, the the poison gardens. I was actually contacted by the uh, head gardener at the gardens there, who had uh, just read my book and uh, contacted me and we got into correspondence over that and he invited me over to visit the gardens and go around with him um, as a tour guide through the poison gardens Uh, so i was over there this august um, as an honorary tour guide and i have a little certificate to show that (laughs) oh oh, pardon me oh you're Um, official (laughs) so i'm official um so that was a lot of fun i spent two days going around the poison garden with the uh, tour guides there going through the different plants uh, and what they did and I, I guess it's something I am somewhat proud of in a dark way mm-hmm. um, that I had only four people who fainted during the talks. Oh, wow. Out of boredom or out of uh, what for the heat or was it which was it? Well, I'm, I'm going to decide it probably wasn't boredom. Hopefully. <laughs> Sampling <laughs> the wares of the garden. It could be anything, um, you know, could, could be could anything. Be anything. Um, <laughs> although they did inform me that. Uh, that they are on target to beat their record of 143 faintings that they had last year. What? Uh, people just collapsing, uh, which is quite astounding. Um, what are they fainting? What's, what's causing the fainting? I I suspect it's entirely uh, psychological. Oh, it's Obviously, theatrical? The tour, yeah, yeah, the tour guides are going around there multiple times a day. Um, and haven't suffered any ill effects. So it's just the, the stories, the atmosphere. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was quite interesting that people actually did succumb to the <laughs> nature of what was going on. So, I mean, is, is swooning, is that big? Is that making a comeback in the UK? Or what's, uh, you know, because it kind of went out of fashion in the 1800s. But is that could be it, you know, maybe? Yeah, I, I think possibly the reason only four people fainted uh, was there was appeared to be a distinct lack of fainting couches <laughs> provided for the public. <laughs> well, I mean, we need to rectify that. Now that you're an official tour guide, you got to say something. You got yeah, a little degree uh, of power here, you know. Yeah. Well, it's your duty. we'll see how far that goes. <laughs> it's, it's your duty. Uh, well, I, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that because you know sometimes you know the people in your book and the sub the, the toxins in your book cause permanent fainting. You know, um, and we're gonna talk about them. And so really, this is what what I found so interesting. I, I two things I found interesting. Number one, I love in your book that you talk about the chemicals like these notorious toxins like cyanide strychnine uh you know even some common ones like chlorine the first the first chemical weapon uh chlorine chlorine gas uh, these are all you know you talk about the me- the mechanisms in which they affect the body in a way that didn't make me want to faint <laughs> out of boredom uh because it's it's extraordinarily interesting how it affects the body and the second thing I got after reading your book was that I have a strange fascination with poisons that I didn't realize until I started looking through all the other episodes that I had done. Uh, You know, I did an episode on poisoners throughout history. Uh, I did one on everyday chemicals just a couple months ago that can be poisonous. I did a famous one on the CIA, the the poisoner in chief, Sidney Gottlieb of the CIA, who uh, one poison that wasn't in your book. I'd actually like to start off with, um, I'm going to make you do a little improv here, if that's okay. But, you know, one of the things we talked about with Sidney Gottlieb is he came up with this shellfish, we didn't come up with it, I guess God or whoever came up with it, but the shellfish poison, uh, it's called... Saxitoxin, which is a thousand times more toxic than cyanide. And he had it on this little pin. He would give it to, you know, reconnaissance mission uh, people in airplanes. And if they got caught behind enemy lines, you take it, scratch your skin a little bit, and you're dead within seconds. Uh, I may be making that a dramatic statement, but are you familiar with this toxin and the level of toxicity that it has? Yeah, I'm a a little bit familiar with it. Um, a, A lot of these animal toxins... Um, obviously, the, the animals are immune to the toxins themselves. Um, <laughs> yeah, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, um, yeah. Good design uh, work. Uh, yeah, often because they actually um, 
hide them away in very special compartments. Okay. Uh, same thing that um, snakes do for their venoms, mm -hmm. um, so they're not subject to them. Uh, but a lot of these toxins, like these uh, animal toxins, will attack the nervous system. And the nervous system obviously is important for regulating all of the body's functions, including those of breathing. And so once you, your brain is not telling your uh, muscles to breathe anymore, then you're going to stop breathing and you'll die very quickly. That's right. um, s same with the heart being regulated. Um, if the heart has got no signals, it starts becoming erratic and will eventually stop beating. So a lot of these things uh, do uh, directly attack the nervous system. Well, it seems like that's the best way to to. I mean, your nerves are sending all the information. So, you know, it's kind of like in war. You know, you want to cut down the lines of communication and the supply route. Once you've done one of those two things or both, uh, you kind of cut off the life's blood, so to speak, of anything, any whether it's a living creature or, or an army. Uh, you know, and, and I cannot tell you why I got into poisons. This this is actually a new fact when I was reading your book that I realized that I had done so many uh, on different aspects of it, but that can't be the reason you got into it. You know, I know you're a doctor. A lot of the people you profile in your book are medical professionals who are trying to use their knowledge of poisons and toxins to, you know, carry out their, you know, dirty, nasty little deeds. Uh, was that how you came to it? Or were you looking to bump someone off and you wanted to find the most clever uh, way to go undetected? Well, first of all, I'm going to have to claim the fifth on that question. Are you are you a citizen? <laughs> can you do that? Are you a citizen? I are can. You? I am okay. A <laughs> Protected. No, okay. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. You. <laughs> all right. I, I actually got into uh, being really interested in this as a, a student. Okay. Uh, and I will say at the time, we were still able to do experiments with cyanide um, in the really? lab. Um, so wow. I'm sure you're not allowed to do that anymore. But oh, back God. then, it, it uh, How long was, ago was this? Yeah. <laughs> How old are you? Oh, <laughs> it's the 18, what is all this right, like? it was in the last century. Okay, okay all right. That's as, that's as far as we need to go. Oh, fair enough. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, it wasn't recent for sure. This is, you know... Wow. Yes. Okay. That's crazy. So, so you got to use, so you were able to use hands-on with some of these chemicals. Yeah, I did. And I think one of the things that really fascinated me is that a lot of the knowledge that we have now mm. of how the body works has actually come about from doing experiments with poisons to mm. dissect out exactly how different parts of the body work right. so they've been very useful uh one particular the poison from fugu fish to trodotoxin yeah yeah, uh, yeah we know now completely wipes out a uh, nervous transmission so you can actually figure out if a response in the body is due to nervous input or it's a hormone that's affecting that system oh uh, interesting we wouldn't have been able to figure that out without tetrodotoxin. Yeah. So a lot of these poisons are actually very useful experimentally and have mm -hmm. helped us tremendously in figuring out how the human body works. And by knowing that, we're then able to use drugs to rectify many of the problems that otherwise we wouldn't be able to take care of. Sure. Well, there's, you know, there's this great quote um, from uh, Paris, Par oh, um, I, I cannot pronounce anything, Paracelsus, Paracelsus, full name. Uh, so he said that the dose makes the poison, which is kind of what, what you're talking about here, which is right. super interesting. And I want to say that his full name is Philippus Areolus Theophrastus Bombastus, which is great. Von Hoffenheim. <laughs> That's a, that, yeah. I, that seems extraordinarily European, but Paracelsus seems Greek. Um, but none, I don't think either one of those are true. Well, it, that Paracelsus was a, a name, a nickname he gave himself okay. um, to actually build himself up, to align himself with other famous uh, oh, physicians of the past. It's marketing. Uh, so it's just marketing. So it, it really was an early marketing tool. So there's nothing new. Yeah, I call myself the funk lord, but I haven't quite gotten on the level that that he has. But you bring up kind of some interesting points here that I want to I want to go back to. Uh, you know, this study. Uh, you, you mentioned the tetrodotoxin. 
which I, I've always been kind of fascinated with that particular toxin because it's part of, you know, the zombification poison, you know, in some Haiti, uh, some right. Haiti voodoo rituals, you know, I did a whole episode on on voodoo magic and Haitian rituals, which is, uh, you know, really interesting stuff and learning how it works is kind of cool. And then you mentioned the experiments on humans. You know, I don't think I don't think you were working with the Nazis back in World War Two, at least I hope not. But I do know that Project Paperclip, when we brought a lot of scientists over, you have all of these experiments that were done on humans that I think the American government was kind of like, well, you guys kind of did the work with cyanide. Yeah, a lot of experiments with cyanide, uh, other poisonous chemicals. We got chlorine, its effects on prisoners and humans. Why would we want to throw that information out? Let's hang on to it, you know, bring you guys over and learn from it. And the terrible thing is you kind of do. You kind of learn all kinds of you know effects on the body. And I'm guessing from what you're saying, you can then take that that information and then turn it to the good and find out ways that it actually helps humanity and humankind. Yeah, the, there's nothing intrinsically good or bad about the chemicals. Right. Uh, you yeah, mentioned yeah. mentioned chlorine. Um, uh, my grandfather happened to be gassed by chlorine in the trenches in the First World War. Wow. Um, and he suffered the rest of his life with uh, lung problems. Um, so, so that's really bad. Uh, but at the same time, chlorine has been used, um, diluted in water as a bleach um, right. that has killed many bugs and saved many lives, um, being used as a bleach and disinfectant. So it, it's really how it's used and who's using it and what the ultimate goal for using that chemical is. Right. Um, as, as to whether good things or bad things come out of it. Right. And that's what's kind of interesting is, you know, as human beings, we kind of are masters of finding the bad things. And it takes some of the more brilliant minds to find the good things that come out of it. Uh, you know, chlorine is interesting. You know, you mentioned that that that. Uh, uh, your grandfather was gassed by it. It's pretty horrible. From what I understand from reading your book, chlorine gas dissolves in water uh, and by water, you know, the, the liquid in your mucous membranes, your lungs, your eyeballs and creates hydrochloric acid, which I think slowly dissolves you from the inside out. Am I, am I, am I being too theatrical yeah. with that statement? It's felt like. No, um well, it's it's actually hypochlorous Hypo. acid. It's not okay. it's not hydrochloric acid. That's um, I thought it made both. No, piece. it doesn't make both. Uh, no, it makes hypochlorous acid when it dissolves it in water. Okay. Okay. Um, but what is really nasty about it, particularly, it gets into the uh, mucus lining your lungs and makes acid there. Is that it destroys the lining of the airways and the lungs, mm -hmm. and what happens then is that. Uh, fluid from the blood, which would normally be kept out of the lungs, mm -hmm. starts seeping into the lungs, and you essentially drown it in your own fluids. Um, unfortunately, not necessarily very quickly. Um, yeah. It can take a while uh, of just slowly drowning, uh, which makes it kind of nasty that uh, you're slowly aware that something terrible is happening you're not being able to breathe and you realize i'm not going to live much longer <laughs> you do paint you do paint a morbid picture uh <laughs> dr bradbury uh i think it must be all those agatha christie novels you read which uh are <laughs> you quote at the beginning of every chapter so <laughs> you've got quite a way with words but this is you know some of the you know some of these things are they are pretty insidious you know with uh, the story that goes along with chlorine that I thought was really interesting. I actually had to look up bleach because I wasn't sure what was actually in bleach now that you've mentioned it. Um, and I was like, what, is chlorine in bleach? Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Uh, but you talk about this nurse who was injecting bleach into patients' dialysis lines. And yeah. uh, this, was, this was crazy to me because bleach apparently breaks open the red blood cells. Uh, what it does, it seems to me, uh, you can tell me more technical terms, but it seems like it shreds all the different... Uh, cells that are in your blood and just creates long like protein strains that look kind of like yeah. you know celery almost and it just clogs everything up makes these big clots and that's how you end up dying and actually they found one in one of the lines in the dialysis machine which is gross horrible story yeah. uh, this is yeah. one of the people you, you profile 
Yeah, so it, it's interesting because if you can pair that to using chlorine as a gas, because obviously that gets into the lungs right. and causes you to die in one kind of way. Uh, but in this case, it was injected into the dialysis line, so directly into the blood, yeah. and actually killed people in a slightly different way. I mean, it still destroyed um, all the red blood cells. Uh, and obviously, if your red blood cells are destroyed, you can't carry oxygen around your body. Uh, but all the proteins that were present in those red blood cells uh, start to aggregate. Uh, so yeah, if you think right. about going from um, the white of an egg uh, when mm. you first crack it uh, to when you cook it, it becomes hard and stringy. That That's exactly what's happening in a different way. In this case yeah. with a chemical, it's just causing all the proteins in the blood to, to coagulate mm -hmm. and clog things up and you can't to carry oxygen uh, and the blood can't do its job and everything gets clogged up, and unfortunately, people did die. Well, this one's kind of interesting. If, I, if I'm remembering the story correctly, this particular nurse, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> how, how, I believe it was a she, correct? This was... Um, yes. Uh, how she got caught was a couple of other patients watched her take a bucket of bleach and just fill syringes, but like looking around her, like, hey, is anyone, you know, <laughs> like out of a, a murder mystery? And yeah. then starts, they watch them inject into the lines and they're trying to flag someone down like, hey, <laughs> I mean, that's that's a pretty scary scene. You know, you're, you could be next. Yeah, it, it is bizarre that, you know, obviously, again, the bleach was useful because it's used as a disinfectant. And so mm -hmm. you have to make sure all the equipment is sterile before another patient comes in. Sure. So it there was lots of bleach around. Um, but, yeah, that's the strange thing is that uh, she was actually witnessed doing it. Um, but nobody believed the patients who were seeing it uh, until, you know, Strangely enough, people started being rushed to hospital. People were dying, and the police eventually got called in. And mm -hmm. uh, for a long time, she denied it that she did anything wrong. Yeah. Um, but f finally confessed and uh, is now obviously um, in the prison uh, in Texas now. Well, it was funny. Some of these people I looked up uh, just to see like what they were, you know, what was going on now. And that particular murderer looks like someone I used to work with. Uh, who wasn't very nice, so <laughs> no surprises there. Maybe, maybe uh, yeah. who knows what's going on. Uh, so I want to talk about another one. Strychnine is one of the ones that's in uh, is in your book, and this one was kind of interesting for a couple of different reasons. But the first was, I believe you talk about how it was used as a pick me up in the 19th century, and this is this this. Whenever I look throughout history and look at tonics and, you know, even you know, even some of the snake oil that people were selling, but doctors were selling all sorts of really in, uh, like just great little tonics back then that had cocaine in them, morphine. Mm. You know, I mean, they were really going into the good stuff. Yeah. And, you know, Coca-Cola was caffeine and cocaine. I mean, that's what it was, you know, and strychnine was kind of used in that, I believe it was used kind of in that vein, no pun intended, uh, but also uh this is one of those things where the I believe the lethal dose is so close to the helpful dose that it's kind of why it stopped being used as a from medical purposes. Is that am I kind of yeah. right? Yeah, um, there really isn't uh, a good use for strychnine. Okay, um, it's uh, one of the things that I found really interesting about this is learning where they come from and okay. strychnine obviously comes from a, a plant called uh, strychnos vux nux vomica which uh, translates to the vomit button tree right. so, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think you know any time that uh, you hear that's where it comes from there's kind of a clue there Probably. Um, but it, it was used um historically as a tonic um it kind of in low doses has similar effects to, to caffeine um even though it obviously was used as a tonic um in the 1800s and early 1900s it was actually used uh, by a weightlifter in the rio olympic games right uh, because it does right. cause a very strong uh, muscle contraction so obviously, if you're a weightlifter, um, yeah. that, that kind of makes sense. Sure. Um, yeah. Obviously, he had his medal stripped from him. Yeah. Uh, 
but it does do uh, cause muscles to contract, um, and that that's partly how it leads to to death. Um, it will cause muscles to contract very strongly, uh, so strongly that it will actually rip the muscles away from the bones. Ah. Uh, so it's a very painful uh, death. Uh, again, it's one of those drugs that affects the nervous system. So mm -hmm. it's not affecting the muscles itself. It's controlling the nerves that tell the muscles to contract, right. uh, which is also one of the other really nasty aspects uh, of strychnine is that not only does it uh, um, increase the activity of the nerves controlling muscles, it increases the activity of nerves that are sensing things that are going wrong. Right. So somebody has a heightened sense that uh, something right. really terrible is going on <laughs> and th th this is not a quick death um, it's a death that can linger for several hours uh, up to a day of just having strong uh, you know anyone that's had a leg cramp mm. knows how painful that can be yeah so imagine if that's happening to every single muscle in your body all at the same time right uh, uh, and, and eventually it causes the muscles controlling breathing to just completely wear out uh, and they're no longer it's so you're going to again slowly asphyxiate but being acutely aware that you are asphyxiating yeah, that that was this one is particularly bad um, for that reason that you were so aware of what's happening, and I believe you talk about how the muscles contract so much and the back muscles are so much stronger mm -hmm. that people actually go into an arch where they're basically on the top of their head and the like ball like yeah. the balls of their feet or something like that. Like it's pretty brutal. Yeah, uh, if you go online and look up the word opisthotonus, uh, which is the technical term for, for what's going on, uh, because the muscles of the back are typically much stronger than the muscles at the front of your body, when everything contracts, it just bends you into a bow. Yeah. Uh, and this is a classic symptom of, of strychnine poisoning. There's not very much else that results in that kind of uh, feature. Um, obviously, it also affects the muscles of the face. Um, so people affected with this have a, a very uh, pronounced grin, much like the Joker. Right, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's very characteristic um, of strychnine poisoning. Yeah, it sounds like Smilex or something like that, which is kind of kind of crazy. And you profile, you know, I think this is probably one of the most interesting people profiles you do in the book, which is you talk about um, the poisoner of Lambeth, Dr. Thomas Neal Cream, uh, no relation, I'm assuming, uh, and <laughs> the first name anyway. Uh, but this is crazy. This is going on at a time in the UK. I think it's like three years after Jack the Ripper. You know, this is the very early days of of human beings realizing that serial killers, you know, are a thing. Right. I mean, serial killers have existed throughout history. Right. But we're starting to learn about them. And he might have been, you know, one of the first couple. And he was poisoning prostitutes and getting I mean he's doing it all over the world basically uh, but tell me a little bit about him and then I want to talk about the uh, the great court case which might be one of the most you know this is something that I think only my cousin Vinny rivals as far as uh, surprise endings to a court case Yes, yeah, so Thomas Neal Cream um, started his life uh, in Canada. Well, he was actually born in Scotland. Okay. Um, and then his family moved over to Canada uh, when he was a young child. He went to medical school in Canada and graduated from medical school. Uh, he got his wife pregnant, uh, well, before they were married, and uh, his soon-to-be father-in-law forced him at gunpoint to marry uh, his daughter. A real shotgun wedding. <laughs> real shotgun yeah. wedding, yeah. literally, mm. um, which he did, and then a day later promptly <laughs> left the country uh, without <laughs> telling anybody. Right, right. Um, coming over to the UK, started working as a doctor, um, not a very competent doctor, uh, he was mostly known for performing a lot of abortions, and a lot of his patients died from chloroform poisoning for, for being just not used properly. Wow. Um, and Do you think he, that was by design? I mean, interrupt you. Do you think that was by design, I'm guessing? 
I'm not particularly sure it was by design. I think really? it really was just total incompetence. Um <laughs> Because he did move on to strychnine, yeah, and yeah. he knew what he was doing uh, okay. with that. Um, <laughs> right. uh, yeah, as you mentioned, um, this was around the time of Jack the Ripper, and for a little while it was thought that he actually was Jack the Ripper. Oh, is that uh, right? Although there's, there's several lines of evidence that suggest that's probably not true. Um, obviously, Jack the Ripper killed with knives, mm -hmm. he killed with strychnine, and perhaps probably the main reason he wasn't Jack the Ripper is because he was in prison in Illinois at the time for killing prostitutes in Chicago at the World's Fair right. uh, that was around at the time. So that's probably good evidence that he wasn't Jack the Ripper. Wait, wait, so Olin, that's interesting. So um, so I did a whole episode on H.H. Holmes, and one of H.H. Uh, Holmes's... Um, uh, and I did an interview with one of his relatives who's making the case that Jack the Ripper was H.H. H. Holmes. And I, I bring that up uh, not only to plug myself, which I do mm. often, but also because what you're talking about, this poisoning, I didn't realize that Thomas, uh, that Dr. Cream, can I call him a doctor? That uh, Neil Cream was in, so he was in Chicago at the same time H.H. H. Holmes was yep. operating, doing yeah. kind of the same thing. Doing, doing kind of the same thing. So wow. it, he, he was around then. Um, oh, that's fast. So I did not know that. So, yeah. Um, he, he actually eventually did set up shop um, hmm. in Chicago a, as a doctor. And there, there was uh, a railway worker um, just outside of Chicago mm -hmm. uh, who had uh, developed um, epilepsy. Okay, right. And at the time, going back to the patent medicines, you talked about the snake oil uh, before. Uh, Cream was setting up um, his store selling drugs to treat epilepsy. The uh, okay. railway worker sent his wife down to Chicago to pick up some of the drugs mm -hmm. and took, took them back. Uh, they started having an affair. Cream and the railway worker's uh, wife started having an affair. And... Mm -hmm. um, Cream decided that really the best thing that they could do would be to get rid of the husband, and then they could live a life of bliss together happily ever after. Sure, right. And so uh, he put strychnine in the medicine. Uh, she took it home and fed it to her husband who, who died from the classic uh, muscle torture of strychnine very quickly. The, the pair of them did get arrested for that murder, uh, she turned state's evidence and got uh, away without any convictions. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was sent to Joliet Prison, mm -hmm. uh, where he stayed for several years. Um, he did get out before his prison term officially ended, and, and there is some speculation that at the time the person running for governor of Illinois was... Uh, getting funds from an inheritance. That, um, <laughs> hmm. As you know, Illinois has absolutely no history of governors going no, to prison. No, no. I actually, I think there's more governors that have gone to prison than have been, that have not gone to prison. If I'm remembering my history correctly, yeah. <laughs> at least my youth. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's three up top of my head. But anyway, outside of Chicago, um, mm. just about a 40 minute drive from, from where I live um, is, is the cemetery where the railway worker was buried. No kidding. And th th there's a tombstone there um, that says, uh, here he lies, murdered by his wife and Dr. Cream. Wow. Uh, which is straight on the gravestone there for all to see. So, Well, I want to, th quick, so before, you know, we got to talk about this surprise ending, uh, which you glossed over. Uh, All right, so, so tell me about yeah, so let me come back yeah, come to back, London. Come back, come back, so, come back to London. Yeah. Now after, yeah, so his release from uh, prison, uh, Joliet Prison in Illinois, comes over back to London mm -hmm. uh, and starts up again um, poisoning prostitutes with, with strychnine. It's back to business. He, agrees, he meets one uh, girl um, along the Thames Embankment and tells her that this is a, a special pill that will get rid of any skin blemishes that you have. Mm -hmm. uh, just make you beautiful. Um, she pretends to take it. 
um, suspicious of him somewhat, so she just kind of fakes that she's taken it. He assumes that she has and runs away. Mm-hmm. A few years later, he is caught uh, and brought to trial. And as is often the case uh, around those times, the main defense was, well, he's an upstanding doctor. Mm -hmm. Who would possibly think that he could be capable of of these murders? Um, And then the prosecution brings in their star witness, this woman that he thought he had killed with strychnine. And so obviously when she takes the stand, his jaw just drops because he thought he'd killed her. Uh, And she became the star witness and eventually led to him being convicted of murders and he was hanged um, in London. Um, Probably one of the few or or the last people that was hanged for murder in in London. Um, Not in public, it was behind the prison walls. Um, So, yeah. Uh, it was remarkable that uh, one of his victims did survive. Yeah. Well, she, and it, I can just imagine the doors being thrust open and her walking in. Uh, because I think she was even mentioned as being one of the victims, but she had just gone right. missing. No, Her family didn't know where she was. They Everyone assumed she was dead. So it was actually very shocking for her to walk into the room. Uh, it would make a tremendous movie. Absolutely. I mean, great, great ending. Uh, two things I want to tie to, to, to other episodes. Uh, you said he did a stint in Joliet Prison. Uh, I just did a whole episode on Loeb and Leopold, who also did stints in Joliet and Statesville, two different prisons uh, in, in Joliet. You got to keep all those governors. You got to have somewhere to put them. Uh, and, you know, while Dr. Cream was in medical school, he was there with none other than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who goes on to write Sherlock Holmes. I did a whole episode on, on Sherlock Holmes and, and his history. And we all know Sherlock Holmes was famous for capturing people just like Dr. Cream himself. Uh, that's, a, I mean, just a great story. I mean, <laughs> that whole thing top to bottom uh, is just, just one of the best. Yeah, it's... Uh has been suggested that the character of Moriarty was based on Cream, mm. although that that's somewhat speculative, that yeah. there's really no hard evidence. Uh, but it is a nice story uh, to have that sure. uh, Cream was the basis for Moriarty, <laughs> yeah. which I, I guess somewhat makes sense uh, in that they were both uh, deranged medical individuals. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> Which is, yeah, that, that is true. Uh, and you know, you know, you write stories, you get inspired by your past, you know, who knows. Um, so one of the other ones that I wanted to talk about uh, is Wolfsbane. And this one I really like because, you know, it's it's got a lot of history. You know, uh, I think it was named after... Um, uh, no, oh, to- wasn't it? Is toxin means like dipping arrows in poison? Is that where it comes from? Yeah, am I right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, a lot of these have been used historically for hunting. Right. Um, wolf's bane. Uh, bane means to kill or, or death, right. and um, arrows that were tipped with uh, wolf's bane, that the poison that comes from this plant, uh, pretty much wiped out the wolf population, certainly in England. Wow. Uh, completely wiped it out and certainly decimated it in most of Europe. Um, so hence its name, wolf's bane. It kills wolves. Yeah, and lots of other people, including hu- and mammals. Lots of other- right, yeah. In- and humans, and humans. Uh, who are just other mammals. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Uh, and it's, what, what's kind of interesting is this has that kind of romantic, you know, it's a beautiful flower that can kill, right? And so it's, you know, one of these kind of classic gothic literature types of, you know, poisons. And this one I thought was interesting. You said that it's often mistaken for horseradish. And I think it famously was uh, at a, wasn't, is, didn't you, you write a story about how I think it was yeah. famously, you know, swapped out for. Uh, royalty uh it was um the roots look very similar okay and um there, there was a, a dinner party that was held in uh inverness just outside inverness mm. um obviously inverness famous for the loch ness monster yeah. uh, but this this was a case where um a maid was sent into the garden to collect some horseradish uh for the roast beef dinner she didn't really know what she was doing 
just dug up some plants. It looked like a horseradish root, uh, brought it in and gave it to the cook, and she incorporated it into the evening meal. And uh, one person died. Um, several others were seriously ill. Yeah, this, I mean, some of these, you know, a lot of uh, mushrooms as well, which can be very toxic. You know, there are people who, uh, some mushroom, you know, the uh, the Amanita family has a lot of nerve. It, it affects the nerves. I think one's hallucinogenic. Right. One is extraordinarily toxic, uh, the death cat mushroom. Uh, the other one looks like the Super Mario mushroom, you know. So obviously that one's the hallucinogenic one. Uh, so there's a lot of these, you know, mistaken in the wild kind of problems with these, right? But I imagine, you know, much yeah. like... You know, when you have a butterfly that its wings look like the face of an owl or a predator, I imagine some of these plants must also, from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, these poisons are bitter, so they're trying to um, deter animals from eating them. But I'm guessing that other species must adopt a similar flavor or look in the same way that animals do, or am I kind of reaching there? It, it kind of makes sense. I mean, obviously, that the plants are not doing it to kill anyone necessarily. Right. It's just a, a defense mechanism to prevent uh, themselves from being eaten mm -hmm. so that they can propagate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, plants are, are not going to be harmed by it. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not aware of any uh, plants that have um, assumed that uh, persona. Uh, I mean, certainly there are some snakes that have mimicked right. other poisonous snakes. Yeah. Uh, whether plants have done that, uh, it kind of sounds as if it could happen, but I, I'm not really aware of any instances that it does. So in your professional opinion, was that a pretty brilliant conclusion that I just came to? It was outstanding. <laughs> That's all I'm looking for. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, this is, and Wolfsbane is another one of these tricky ones, right? Where you talk about how this was kind of an old timey painkiller as well. And again, dose makes the poison. It's yeah. that the difference between lethal and helpful is so small that it's very easy to overdose. Yeah, uh, and partly actually to bring everything back in a full circle. Mm -hmm. uh, as I mentioned, when I was an undergraduate, I, I did my undergraduate studies at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was actually back there just this past summer, uh, wandering around the campus. And what did I see growing in the gardens there? Uh, Wolfsbane. Really? Are you, are you serious? <laughs> on purpose or I, accident? I, I, no, on purpose. Um it doesn't go necessarily by that name. It goes by a, a much nicer name, Monkshood. Sure. Um, but yes, it was ab absolutely growing there. So I, I found that just a delight what? to see <laughs> that it was uh, being cultivated back at the university where I started my interest. <laughs> right. That is that is that is pretty <laughs> cool. And you talk about you know in that particular in the story you talk about for Wolfsbane. Yeah. I have to say, there's this hilarious description. Uh, it's page 101 for people who are following along at home by the book, A Taste for Poison. Uh, you know, th you talk about how there's a guy named Dr. Stevenson who's an expert in detecting alkaloids. And alkaloids are these poisons, these bitter uh, salts uh, and you know things that are in there. I think they're salts. They're yeah. in the leaves, and that's what yeah. uh, you know, makes people sick. Yeah. But he's like a sommelier for alkaloids essentially, or he's claiming to be. Yeah, so you know, anybody that now watches CSI or Bones or those kind of uh, shows is very familiar with the fact that everything just gets put into a machine. You press a button and you get an instant readout of, yeah. of what the poison is. Yeah. Um, obviously, those are very important. They're more modern developments and are very much used in uh, forensic science these days. Uh, but going back to the uh, 19th century, obviously, those machines didn't exist. So the question was how do you d detect a poison how do you determine uh, what a person has been killed with and so yeah this uh, famous professor dr stevenson um had this tremendous parlor trick of being <laughs> able to identify poisons mm -hmm. by tasting them mm -hmm. uh, and he used to run um, a little dangerous little by the games. way <laughs> yeah you know? But he, he used to run games with his colleagues mm -hmm. um, who were chemists and deciding, you know, 
who can identify this chemical first? Right. You with all your chemistry or, or me with my tongue? Right. <laughs> uh, and he generally was able to, to come up for first um, with identifying. So it, it, it seems kind of okay that you take a little bottle with poison and dab it on your tongue and you're able to identify it. Um, what's a little more gruesome is that when you get a, a cadaver mm -hmm. who you suspect has been poisoned, mm -hmm. um, you're actually going to take the stomach contents mm -hmm. uh, and that's what you're going to be dabbing on your tongue. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is not some nice pure chemical that you get from uh, the pharmacy. Um, it, it's a whole gamish of uh, things that have come from the body. Uh, is that a technical term? A but, gamish? <laughs> yes, yeah. it, it is. Right. Uh, I, I can look at it in the medical. Sure. Sure. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. I, well, the other thing, you know, if you want to go another gruesome level, from what I understand, they would also to make sure it was a poison. If it, you know, if a if a professional's tongue wasn't handy. Uh, you would inject this into stray animals, which uh, I mean, this, you know, as an animal lover, that 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 uh, no. that was probably the most gruesome part of, of your story, because it doesn't just happen in one or two. This was like industry standard for decades. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it was. So, um, yeah, animals were used. Uh, again, we, we've talked about how different poisons kill in different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so not only can you get some idea of uh, what the poison is, but depending upon how quickly the animal dies, you can get some idea of how much poison oh, right. um, they've ingested or been given. So you can actually get, get both of those kinds of information. Now, it's unfortunately, we have moved on from there, um, so we don't use animals at all any longer in uh, detecting poisons. Do you think there's anyone still around who does the tasting trick? Do you think there's anyone who does that any, any more? I, I suspect... There's got to be one guy doing it, right? There probably is. One. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, we are scientists. We, we are naturally curious, and um, I, I'm sure there's somebody that's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it it's, reminds me of the story of, um, you know, the tombstone uh, of, the, of the guy that uh, once on his tombstone. I thought that would work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's good. <laughs> you know, I, I just imagine, you know, the UK, I'm not saying anything new here. The UK, you guys kind of love, you know, the eccentric people, right? The US has no shortage of, of eccentrics as well. So there's got to be someone out there who has read this story and, and is, you know, still... Um, you know, dabbing poison on their tongue to, to check it out. There's actually people in uh, Japan with fugu fish who actually pay good money to have tetrodotoxin. Really? Um, it, it uh, yeah, they they have the chefs have to be certified by the Japanese government uh, to get it from the fugu fish, uh, and the point is that just that little bit amount causes a a tingling sensation on the lips where the the nerves are, are dead and so there's a whole culinary industry um particularly in japan of people who are taking tetrodotoxin wow well i think there's a famous simpsons episode where he went to a sushi restaurant where someone had to cut out i mean it's basically based on that um i think it was the puffer fish who <laughs> had to cut it out but yeah so it, you know it's 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 out there people look people love pushing the boundaries you know i think even um uh one of the i don't know if we talked about it but um uh one of the, there's a culture who would eat a poison routinely um oh who uh i have it on the tip of my tongue no pun intended what was it it was the oh man uh, is it arsenic no it's not arsenic the arsenic eaters from austria yeah so these are people yeah. who actually can ingest pretty sizable amounts which was interesting because i know that there were certain uh, you know, kings who would take small amounts of toxin and venom and poisons to get their body used to it so that they couldn't be poisoned. I know that that's possible, but with some of these, because they affect the uh, the synapses and they they they're, they're, those enzymes replace, you know, bodily enzymes and cause all sorts of, of havoc and chaos, this one surprised me that you could actually get your body used to it. 
It's actually not as impressive as it sounds, uh, oh, mostly because behind the curtain, they, you're, you're destroying know. it, destroying the mythos. Yeah. Um, so that they were actually eating large chunks of this, and it was actually going straight through their bodies with, with <laughs> very little being absorbed. Oh. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, a little bit of a con trick, but uh, it it was some of it was absorbed and. It does appear to uh, increase the amount of uh, red cells in the blood. So obviously these people from the Styrian Alps Mm -hmm. uh, all appeared very healthy, very uh, robust and rosy-cheeked. Probably one of the the interesting things that uh, most people don't realize is that up until a few years ago, every single chicken that was sold in the U.S. was actually fed arsenic. Really? To kill it? Is that how they killed it? That's not how they kill it. They still no, strangle them, right? To make the, to make the meat uh, nice and uh, pink mm-hmm. uh, and plump. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And that was only up to a few years ago. It is now banned. But that, that's actually one of the things that we're still not really sure about, mm-hmm. is that if you completely remove arsenic from the diet, um, it actually makes you ill. So a little bit of arsenic is, right? is actually necessary for our bodies. Why it is, how much is necessary, we have absolutely no idea. Uh, all that we know really? is that you actually do need a little bit of arsenic um, to be healthy, which is kind of bizarre. That's really bizarre. I mean, so we're, I mean, so I want to mention that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is from. He's from the uh, the uh, the region of Styria. Is it Styrian? Yes, uh, yeah, he's from. Syria, yeah, which is which is pretty. He's pretty healthy and robust for sure. Uh, so, so how how do we get it? Is this um, how do what foods is it in? It's present. It's present certainly in very tiny amounts. Mm-hmm. Um, so any vegetables that you eat, it's probably come into the vegetables through the, the ground, uh, and we're talking about very tiny amounts. Um, so I'm certainly not suggesting that arsenic is a health food. Don't get a supplement uh, is what you're saying. Don't get an arsenic supplement. Yeah, right. yeah. Don't don't do that. Okay. Well, it is one of the oldest poisons, though. I mean, this goes back. You know, this is known as inheritance powder. I mean, this arsenic goes back as a poison goes back a long way. Oh, it does. I mean, it's been used for literally thousands of years as a poison, um, ground up as a powder, sprinkled on food. Um, and arsenic is actually a, a little insidious. We, we've talked about strychnine. Yeah, we've talked yeah. about chlorine. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these kill very quickly, uh, even cyanide that we mentioned. One of the nasty things about arsenic is that although you can kill by giving a large dose all at once, yeah. you can actually kill by just giving it in small doses over time. Right, right, so yeah. it starts accumulating in your body. So with a little bit, you may feel symptoms of just an upset stomach, some vomiting, some diarrhea, just as you might get some kind of stomach bug is what it feels like. Right. And that was why arsenic was so widely used historically, is that at the time people were dying of lots of diseases like cholera and typhoid, mm-hmm. which had exactly the same symptoms. Right, right. And so it was just assumed they died because they'd caught a bug. Uh, in fact, people were just slowly being dosed with this, and it accumulates in the body until eventually there's enough there that it will kill you. Wow. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, you know, uh, one of the things you mentioned about arsenic is that uh, it actually kills off the bacteria that would decompose you. So some of these arsenic eaters, uh, they would die and they were mummified. And when they would be dug up uh, 12 years after being buried because they had to be moved, um, they were they, they were still recognizable, which is pretty weird. Yeah, um, it certainly kills you. Uh, it kills bacteria and bugs that would normally mm. decompose the body mm. uh, with those taken out yeah that the body looks uh, pretty much 12 years later as it did the day it went into the ground yeah that's weird uh, that's and so, yeah it's thought that maybe that was part of the uh background to the story of vampires oh yeah. uh, of, um you know people just being dead mm-hmm. but 
not dead. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, sure. whether, whether that's true or not, but uh, I don't think it, it is. is thought that. <laughs> you know. I don't know. I don't know, but I don't yeah. think it is. But it could be. Yeah. But, but that may be where, where this, the story arose from is from people who uh, were arsenic eaters and being exposed to arsenic over their entire lives. Right. Well, one of the things I want to make this kind of interesting connection because, you know, talk about being exposed to it over the course of your lives. There are two there are two pigments that you mentioned, and I want to connect these because they're interesting. And arsenic is one of them. It was arsenic is a component of shield green. This chemist discovered this pigment and it contained arsenic. <laughs> and uh, I believe you talk about how in the 1800s, when gaslighting comes to people's homes, this is a, an extraordinarily bright color. <laughs> it's used in wallpaper and the wallpaper was put, you know, they used flour and water, you know, very simple, yeah. simple glue. And the mold would metabolize the arsenic in the pigment and create arsine gas. And that destroys your red blood cells. But the other cool thing it does is it kills bed bugs, which is a, a you know a great side effect, I yeah. guess. But this was kind of like the canary in the coal mine that uh, maybe you shouldn't have this wallpaper in your house. Yeah, it uh, obviously at the time you know we're moving away from candlelight in houses to, to gaslight, and so mm -hmm. people are able to see during the evenings, and so you want to show off your home, and the best way to do that is to have really brightly coloured wallpaper, and so Shields Green is is a particularly vivid um, colour of green. Uh, it wasn't just used in wallpaper; it was used in kids' toys. Uh, to, to paint them. Oh, yeah. um, it was used in uh, food coloring. Uh, oh, so wow. It, it went into cakes to make them green. Mm -hmm. And probably the, the thing that really set it off was that Queen Victoria had a dress that was dyed That's with it. the green. That's uh, it. So once you have the royal endorsement, everyone's to get in on the act that's it um, for sure that was that was definitely it so, so it's pretty i mean but it's it's one of these things where you kind of i mean you know you t I, I, again i did this episode on everyday chemicals and it's interesting how many things we use and we you don't think they're toxic and then over time you're like oh yeah this weird reaction i mean you wouldn't know this unless you realize that the mold is eating the wallpaper and then metabolizing the arsenic right it's not like the arsenic's leaking yep. in or you know kids are eating the paint or whatever you know i mean it's uh, it's, it's very very different uh, the other thing i want to talk about before we run out of time is cyanide we kind of briefly talked about it um, and this one you know pe people have obviously heard of, of, of cyanide and the connection here is that Prussian blue you know made famous by Bob Ross I would argue uh, this has a role to play in the creation of cyanide which is also connected to Van Gogh and I think Van Gogh is connected to two of your stories so that's how I want to round this out so let's talk about cyanide Prussian blue and if you can tie in Van Gogh uh, I'll give you the trifecta. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Prussian blue, um, again, a very vivid blue dye. Mm -hmm. Before this came on the scene, um, blue dyes were incredibly expensive. Um, they had to be ground from precious stones. And so blue was not really a very common pigment in paintings. Um, this blue dye came along pretty much by accident. Um, the, the people that were trying to uh, make the dye were actually after a red color and were right. somewhat disappointed right. <laughs> that they didn't get one. Yeah. And so if, you know, they were cooking this, heating it up, and so you kind of figure, well, if I heat it a little bit more, it will turn really red. Yeah, right. Um, it, it, it didn't. It turned blue, a very vivid, violent blue. Um, which became known as Prussian blue because it uh, ended up being used as the dye to uh, dye the clothes of the Prussian army, mm -hmm. uh, which is how it got its name. Um, and, and is still a very useful uh, chemical and, and dye even today. Mm -hmm. um, in contrast to Shields Green, which uh, is pretty much non-existent anymore, Prussian blue um, it is still around because the uh, the arsenic in it is very stable. It's, it's not going right. to come out and affect you. <laughs> right. uh, not that you should go around licking paintings or anything. I wouldn't recommend uh, it. 
I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. Um, so, so that's how, how the blue dye came in. And then it, to tie that back to one more color uh, of yellow, uh, which is Van Gogh, uh, his yellow period, probably most famous with uh, Starry Night and the sunflowers. It is thought that he was being treated and probably got some toxicity from uh, digoxin. Mm-hmm. which is uh, a plant that's still actually used quite a lot. It comes from the foxglove, mm-hmm. uh, makes a, a very useful chemical for treating congestive heart failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is still used. Right. Um, but it has this um, little side effect of altering your perception of color in your eyes. Mm-hmm. And it gives everything that you see a somewhat yellow haze. And it's thought that at the time um, Van Gogh was actually being treated by his physician uh, for heart conditions and was given digoxin from Foxglove. And this caused him to now suddenly start seeing everything with a slight yellow taze, mm-hmm. uh, which moved him into his yellow period and painting everything yellow right well and starry night i think in your book you say that the yellow halos around the stars may have been caused by mm. this and to bring it back to the prussian blue you know you talked about how they wanted a, a red a red dye i think it was basically um a chemist was ripping off a cheap artist which is how they created this color but it made yeah. that blue very affordable and you make the argument in your book that starry night wouldn't have been possible without that innovation uh, with that blue color. So both, you know, so cyanide and foxglove, these two horrible toxins have an ex- have a role to play, a very important role to play in Van Gogh creating what is my favorite uh, piece, Starry Night. Uh, that was my fact of your book. Well, as long as you got something out of the book. And yeah, <laughs> indeed, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, the world is certainly uh, better off for having Van Gogh paintings in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Sure. But yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, without uh, these dyes that are based upon toxic chemicals and poisons that Van Gogh was experiencing at the time, we may never have uh, had those paintings around. It's true. I mean, it's kind of crazy how how the world works, you know. Um, But yeah, that was, you know, I thought that was uh, that was extraordinarily interesting. And you can find all of this in your book. uh, A taste. Is it a taste for poison? A taste for poison. A taste for taste for poison. A taste for poison available now. Uh, So how can people find this book? How can they find you if they want to learn more? Uh, But keeping in mind, listeners, uh, Dr. Bradbury is not going to give you any sort of advice on how to procure these or to make the perfect crime. I don't believe so. Right. Is that right? That is correct. In fact, my publisher uh, made me put in a disclaimer that uh, (laughs) this was not uh, meant to give the pros and cons of any particular poison. Right. Um, Which you do, though, in the back of your book, in your appendix. uh, Spoiler alert. You do actually do a pros and cons list, sort of. I was made to put that in by the publisher's lawyers. Right. Um, So, yes, uh, my book's available. at all good bookshops, uh, including Amazon, both hardback and paperback. It's available as uh, an audio book. Uh, had a really terrific guy that uh, reads the audio book. Um, I myself do the uh, epilogue for the audio book. Oh, wow. Um, it uh, should be coming out um, on Spotify soon, but it's certainly available um, in Audible at uh, this time. And anybody that's interested in learning more can uh, go to my website, uh, neilbradbury.org, and uh, you'll learn a lot more about different poisons there and different stories of poisons and poisoners. Do you have to do social media at all? I do a little bit. I, I am on Facebook uh, and LinkedIn. Uh, so if you uh, check out Neil Bradbury, you, you will find uh, links there uh, and you can follow me on them. Uh, one quick question for you, uh, Neil. Do you have time to stick around? I wanted to get to Ryson. Uh, there's a great story, two great stories about it, uh, and it's readily available, yeah. like all of your poisons. Do you have 10 minutes to do a quick? Uh, Absolutely. Perfect. Yes. All right, we'll do that. Uh, but until that point, check out Neil's book, A Taste for Poison. And of course, if you want to check out this show, go to fascinatingnouns.com. That's where you can find it. And of course, on social media, we are on 
X, formerly Twitter, at Fascinating Noun. We are on Facebook, at Fascinating Nouns. And you can find me on the web as well. DanielJGlenn.com is where you find that. Uh, but this, you know, this has been just a, a great, enlightening story. I don't know what my fascination is with poisons, uh, but just throughout history, uh, you know, this is kind of the original way to kill people, right? I mean, animals and plants were doing warfare against each other long before humans got involved. And I think the evolutionary uh, aspect of it appeals to me as I believe it appeals to you. Uh, So thank you for enlightening me and enlightening our audience on, on this crazy world. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Pleasure is all mine. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our shows, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.